The Bob Murphy Show, episode 90. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Hope you all had a great Christmas. On this episode, I'm going to just do the the standard work that everybody kind of knows the points I'm going to make, I think, but it's worth going through it because I haven't seen so much to assemble them all in one spot. And what I want to tackle is this idea that I'm even seeing coming from libertarians who agree with me on most other issues, but they, they just don't understand my my take on the Trump impeachment. And so, for example... I won't say the guy's name because I didn't clear it with him and I don't want to shine a spotlight on him in case he doesn't want this type of scrutiny. But in the recent, it was episode 212 of Contra Krugman, that's the podcast I'm sure you all know about that I do with Tom Woods, where we go through Krugman's columns every week and often criticize them. But in that, we, Tom and I reiterated our view that, yeah, we're not fans of Trump, but this outrage over every tweet that he sends out is crazy. And in particular, I said something like, uh, you know, wow, this is actually kind of amazing if you think about it, that we're saying, because this is the third impeachment in U.S. history, and I said something like, you know, the fact that the the third worst thing that a U.S. president has ever done is to ask another government to investigate whether a U.S. official may have done something corrupt in the past, that's the third worst thing that... U.S. Pre- the U.S. must be awesome. That's re- that really speaks highly of our presidents and their moral character, huh? Of course, I was being sarcastic, but you get my point. We're saying the whole thing was a farce. And so in response, this one guy chimed in. Again, It's I, I know the guy, but I don't want to say his name. I haven't cleared it with him. He says, wow, it's not often that I find myself in such total disagreement with Bob and Tom, so much so that I even went to the bother of quickly reviewing the two Tom Woods show episodes on the same subject to see if I had missed something. I don't think I did. You seem to think this is a minor issue. I disagree. Trump is accused of withholding funds that have been authorized by Congress, which is already a violation of the separation of powers, the congressional power of the purse, and the Impoundment Control Act in order to pressure a foreign government to investigate a president's leading political opponent. Frankly, if that is not a massive abuse of office, I don't know what is. And he goes on. Okay. So because of that, you know, and I've seen plenty of things like that, right? So it's not just that one guy that pushed me over the edge here. But I, I've seen that sentiment, and again, I'm I'm trying to step back from this thing and say, am I am I defending Trump here? And and I don't think so. So first, let me give you guys an analogy so you understand where I'm coming from. Suppose there's an area where the posted speed limit is 35 miles an hour. Now, in practice, does that mean everybody driving in that area goes at most 35 miles per hour? No, of course that's not what it means. Most people probably bounce around between. 35 and 42, something like that, right? And so suppose this guy, he's driving along and a cop jumps in his cruiser and, and hun, you know, lights flashing, chases the guy down and gives him a ticket. And the guy has a, a bumper sticker that says, I hate pigs. And it shows a picture of a bunch of cops who are stuffing donuts in their faces, Right. And then, so he's complaining to his buddies or whatever, and they do an investigation. You know, they go online and they start looking through. And it turns out that in that area, the only people who ever get speeding tickets are ones who have not contributed to the Policeman's Benevolent Association, right? Everybody else, they might get stopped, but they don't actually get a ticket if they have donated to the Policeman's Benevolence Association, all right? so. What would happen then if you're, you knew your buddy and he was driving by and he had a bumper sticker on that says, I hate pigs, and he gets pulled over and gets a ticket and somebody starts bringing up these other facts, right? Would you say, oh, 
I, I guess do you, you think it's fine to speed? You, you're saying that your convenience and your impatience is more important than children's lives? You hate pedestrians? Is that what you're saying? I think you'd say, no, that's not what I'm saying, but it's the kind of thing where, yeah, I was going 38 miles an hour in a 35. Everybody does that. That's not a big deal by driver standards. So if you had no context, like if you were a six-year-old kid and somebody said, hey, the speed limit is 35, and, you know, and, and your daddy was going 38 and that's why he got a ticket. The kid would say, well, yeah, gee, I, I'm, I'm shocked. I, I thought my dad was a good guy, but I guess he's a criminal. Man. And no, when you get older, you realize that's just standard stuff for drivers. Nobody literally goes the speed limit or, you know, unless you got a bunch of tickets already and you really can't afford to get pulled over. Everybody goes a little bit over. It's just standard. And especially, like I said, if all those other facts happen to be true, where nobody in this area ever gets a speeding ticket if they've contributed to the Policeman's Benevolence Association and somebody with a bumper sticker that says, I hate pigs, is always getting pulled over, obviously you would say, okay, I'm not justifying speeding, especially you know going 60 miles per hour in a school zone or something, but this is a corrupt system. And the fact that somebody got a ticket doesn't mean he was a more reckless driver than somebody else who didn't get a ticket because this whole system is a farce, right? I think you see where I'm coming from. Okay, so that's kind of my reaction to what's going on with Trump. Oh, and the other thing too is what lesson would be learned, right? The guy that gets pulled over and gets the speeding ticket all the time when he's got that bumper sticker on, I mean, you might say, well, see, this is going to serve to uh, really remind people of the importance of the rule of law. And we, we're serious, and, and so future drivers in this area are going to see what happened to this guy, and they're going to know, you better not go over 35. No, the obvious lesson is going to be, don't put a provocative bumper sticker on that insults police officers. And in fact, if you really want to protect yourself, donate to the Benevolence Association, because that apparently means nothing bad happens to you in this area, right? That's what the lesson would be. It wouldn't be everybody would drive the speed limit, because as we've seen by stipulation in this story I'm making up. Plenty of people speed all the time and nothing happens to them. The only, it's just that's the pretext by which they'll pull you over to punish you if they see a bumper sticker they don't like or to leverage people in order to get them to donate. Okay, so likewise with Trump, yeah, in a vacuum, if I had no history of what U.S. presidents have done while in office and you say, oh, do you know that Congress authorized military aid to be given to the Ukrainian government, by the way, I don't like to say to Ukraine, it's not like they're handing out Uzis or something for home defense to the people. That's not what this was about. All right, they're going to military aid to the Ukrainian government and Trump allegedly is going to hold it up until they investigate someone who happens to be a leading political rival. Now, the way I'm phrasing it like that, I'm not being coy. It's actually not obvious and I'm not just saying this like theoretically this is possible. I mean, it is entirely plausible that Trump would have wanted this investigation even if Biden had dropped out of the race, right? Because this still, you know, this, this cloud hanging over Trump from the 2016 Russian collusion narrative and all that stuff, that's partly what he wanted the investigation into, right? So there's, there was two separate things going on and that was part of it, okay? So, and also too, even if Biden had dropped out, it still would help Trump in terms of his own um, reputation or ability to defend himself against charges from Democrats if he had come up with and said, oh, look at what, what Biden did. Look at how he abused his power, right? So it's, again, it's not at all obvious to me that Trump would not have wanted this and made the request even if Biden had dropped out. Okay, so we don't know. And, you know, maybe that's kind of a weird question to ask because, you know, who can say what would happen in an alternative universe? Maybe even Trump doesn't know what he would have done under different circumstances. But the point is, it, it's not an open and shut case that the motivation for Trump was to get a foreign government to investigate his chief rival in the upcoming election, even though that's the way it's framed, right? It's it's not clear that that was what the motivation was. I mean, because it. Trump asked for an investigation of someone who had two legs. Can you believe it? I mean, that's a true statement, but presumably that's not the thing that, you know. So yes, it is true that Trump's political rival was the person he was asking to investigate, but it's not obvious that that was the reason for it. 
and I said this, you know, talking to Tom in the episode that this critic was upset about, but it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, you could imagine plenty of other scenarios. What, what if uh, Elizabeth Warren walked up and, and, you know, shoots somebody in the face in broad daylight? Are the police allowed to arrest her or would that be construed as helping Trump by arresting one of his leading challengers? Right. So the fact that Biden arguably did some really shady stuff while he was VP related to the Ukrainian government and that Trump later says, hey, why don't you look into that? That prima facie doesn't seem to me to be something that's completely horrendous. All right. But in any event, the way it's framed, yeah, that does sound really bad, doesn't it? And very self-serving. And also, I didn't, I didn't read it, but that was one of the things that the critic of the Contra Krugman episode got into, that after he said that that's not, you know, an impeachable offense or if that's not abuse of power, I don't know what it is. He was saying that the thing about what Trump is accused of doing that makes it so obviously something worthy of impeachment and that it's a little bit obtuse to just compare it to bad things that the executive branch has done in the past is that this was clearly an example of self-dealing where Trump was using the office to enrich himself or to benefit himself as opposed to just a more generic someone making a horrible decision, right? So now even there, that distinction doesn't carry as much weight as you might think, right? So in other words, you could say, oh, well, the fact that FDR locked up Japanese Americans and put them in internment camps that's pretty horrible, but you know, it wasn't like he was just doing it to get reelected or something. Well, how do you know? I mean, there's lots of stuff FDR did that was clearly calculated to help his chance of reelection, particularly with like the disbursement of uh, new deal funds and things like there. I talk about this in my book, the politically incorrect guide to the great depression and new deal, for example, just relying on research that others have done, but clearly the distribution of funds that were, supposed to be for recovery and relief efforts during the Great Depression were in such a manner that the places that were going to be close in an upcoming re-election bid for FDR, that's the way they were distributed. Okay, so we can't prove that, I suppose, but th that sort of thing happens all the time, right? This is, this is standard stuff. And so anyway, isn't everything that a politician does geared towards getting re-elected? Right. So it's this idea that, oh, well, no, Trump just did this to help him with his reelection. This wasn't something, you know, that was just a bad policy move that actually that distinction is not as crystal clear as some of the critics are alleging. But in any event, back to the, the issue here. So I thought what I would do is take this episode to just outline some of the ways that I, I think that this is crazy. Because, again, if, if you didn't have any context, just in a vacuum, when you were a six-year-old kid, just like with the traffic ticket thing, you know, if you didn't know anything about how adults behave when they drive, the fact that your dad got pulled over and got a ticket, <gasps> wow, you were going faster than, than the law allowed, and don't you care about pedestrians, dad? Oh, my God, I thought you were a good guy. I guess not. Likewise, yeah, Trump's thing in a vacuum, if you had no idea what U.S. presidents do, that sounds horrible. And I'm not trying to say, let's be clear here, I'm not trying to say, oh, Trump shouldn't be criticized or he should just get a pass because everybody else did bad stuff too, right? And th that's the, the sense in which the, the claim of whataboutism works or is valid, right? Yeah, I'm sure you've all heard that phrase now. The, oh, what about? It's now being used, I like it's the, the next level, right? So it used to be somebody could say, what about whatever? Like the, the Soviets, apparently, this is where the term came from. You know, when, when countries would criticize something that the USSR was doing, their apologists would say, oh, but what about the U.S. doing blah, 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 or whatever. Germany doing such and such, or who, who, West Germany doing whatever. Great Britain. And so that claim of whataboutism was then used against them. And so now the defenders of Trump, every time he's accused of something, they will bring up worse things or comparable things done by previous presidents and so now the Trump critics will just say, oh, what about ism? I mean, you're not allowed to play that card. Just let's deal with the, the facts at hand. But again, that would be goofy. Think back to my traffic ticket analogy. The guy who gets pulled over and gets a ticket, and then he's complaining and saying, are you kidding me? Every other car on the road that day was going as fast as I was, but the cops singled out me because of that bumper sticker. I just know it. 
And some say, oh, that's what aboutism. Stop, you know, it doesn't matter what other drivers do, it matters what you were doing, you were breaking the law. That would be goofy in that context, assuming what the guy said were true. If it really were the case that he was just driving with the traffic and then he gets pulled over. And so likewise with, with Trump here, the point is not to justify what he was doing. Although it's kind of funny, even here, Dave Smith points out, if you're a libertarian, you presumably don't like military aid being given to the Ukrainian government. So it's a bit weird that the thing we're outraged over is that Trump temporarily refrained from doing something that you wouldn't like as a libertarian. I get, you know, there's a rule of law and you got to follow these procedures. But again, it's weird of all the crimes against humanity, literally, that U.S. governments have engaged in, that the thing that is, you know, just the absolute black mark on the Trump presidency that's really, is this one. That That's weird. Okay. And so again, the point though, is not to say Trump's a good guy. The point is that this whole system is a, is a farce. This is crazy. The reason this is happening to him is not because Trump is so bad. That's not why this is happening. And just like the lesson that the drivers would have learned in that hypothetical story I cooked up is not, oh, I guess I'll just always drive the speed. No, the story is don't pick a fight with the cops. Don't put a provocative bumper sticker on. And better yet, donate to their organization. That's the lesson people would learn. Likewise here, people saying, well, <laughs> this will teach people not to engage in self-dealing when they enter the White House. Ha, ha, ha. I guess we'll have pretty uh, pro-integrity presidents from now on, right? No, that's not what's going to happen. What people are going to learn is, Trump was stupid for picking a fight with the intelligence community. That's what they're going to learn. And, and why did he do that? That was dumb. Now, let me just mention before I forget a lot of what I'm going to say in this episode. I mentioned his name already. Is I'm just going to be paraphrasing arguments that I heard from Dave Smith. Also, in particular, his December 14th, 2019 episode entitled The Inexplicable Deep State. Uh, Dave had gotten a, a CNN clip that somebody recommended to him and he walked through it uh, with Robbie the Fire Bernstein in painstaking detail. And I love his analysis. And so a lot of what I'm going to do in that section of this episode is, is just going to be paraphrasing what Dave said originally. But I think it's important stuff. And just in general, his take on impeachment is the single best source I've found. I and mean, you could say, well, that kind of reflects poorly on you, Bob. You're listening to a stand-up comedian for your political news. Yes, I am. And I make no apologies for it. Incidentally, if you're not listening to Dave's show, it's good stuff. My uh, my 15-year-old son, he will not listen to Contra Krugman in the car. I mean, I can put it on and he'll fall asleep. If I listen to Contra Krugman in the car, if we're on a road trip or something, put on Dave. He loves it. And I asked him one time, I was like, hey, buddy, how come uh, you don't want to listen to Contra Krugman, but you listen to Dave Smith? And he said, because he's funny and he swears a lot. So uh, I guess I could try to start swearing maybe but in any event there you go also just watch out if you do have a family-friendly car environment you don't want to play dave's podcast in that bubble okay so first of all let me establish here again with a lot of these things i'm sure most of you know this stuff but let me just put it all in one spot for you when when I say like Trump picked a fight with the CIA when he came into office, I say that a lot, you know, when people are asking me what's my take on the Trump presidency, and then he kind of backed off a little bit. I'm not inventing that. I'm not crazy. All right. So here, let me play. A lot of people have been playing this more recently now to show that there was this deep state attempt to take out Trump. But here, this is Chuck Schumer. He is on Rachel Maddow's show, and he was the guest right when Trump sent out this tweet saying the intelligence briefing on so-called Russian hacking was delayed until Friday. Perhaps more time needed to build a case. Very strange. Okay, so this was in early January of 2017 when Trump was still just president-elect right before the inauguration. All right, and so here is Chuck Schumer commenting to Rachel Maddow about you know Trump firing off this tweet and, and picking a fight with the intelligence community. Let me ask you, I don't know if you have seen this. I don't want to blindside you with this. This is, a, this is um, the latest statement, latest tweet, as you were just saying, 
the president-elect's latest yeah. unsolicited pronouncement on the intelligence community. This was his tweet just a little while ago tonight. You see the scare quotes there. The yeah. intelligence briefing yeah. on so-called Russian hacking was delayed until Friday. Perhaps more time needed to build a case. Very strange. We're actually told, intelligence sources tell NBC News since this tweet has been posted, that actually this intelligence briefing for the president-elect was always planned for Friday. It hasn't been delayed. Look. But he's, he's taking these... Shots, this antagonism yep. is taunting to the intelligence Let me tell community. You, you take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. So even for a practical, supposedly hard-nosed businessman, he's being really dumb to do this. All right. So again, this is not some Looney Tunes extreme libertarian conspiracy theory that the organs of the deep state might have a grudge and retaliate against Trump for something, that's Chuck Schumer saying that. And it wasn't like Rachel Maddow recoiled and said, oh, I can't believe you would suggest such a thing. No, the intelligence community, if they were going to do something to Trump, it would only be because he you know, was breaking the law in some fashion. I mean, you're making it sound like it's unwise to, to provoke them. What, why would you, right? So that's the exact same thing as, as my analogy with the bumper sticker against the police. Right. If the police really were just enforcing the law, whether or not you hit a bumper sticker, making fun of them should be irrelevant. Right. In a perfect world, it would be irrelevant. That would have no influence on whether you got a speeding ticket or not. But in my hypothetical, that wasn't the case. And here, Chuck Schumer apparently thinks that the intelligence community doing something to get at a president isn't just if they you know, realize oh, the public welfare is at stake. The national interest is threatened. We must act as vanguards of the people know that if you poke the bear, they're going to get back at you. Okay. So say what you will, but that's not just some right-wing crazy apologist notion for Trump making up this dog is deep state. Chuck Schumer saying it right there. Nobody batted an eye. Well, actually people did bat an eye at the time. Glenn Greenwald went nuts. I remember saying, are you kidding me? Look at what Chuck Schumer just said. The newly elected president of the United States or president elect isn't allowed to criticize the intelligence community because otherwise they're going to get, get back at them somehow. Is, is, you know, isn't anyone else listening to this? This is crazy. That's what Glenn Greenwald's take was when Schumer said that. Okay, let me now just quickly go over some things that, in my opinion, were worse than a president temporarily withholding military aid. And by the way, the other thing that's funny about this, Trump didn't even get what he wanted, right? The allegation is that Trump was going to withhold military aid until they announced they were going to investigate Biden. But because, you know, he and his allies realized, uh oh, there are some red flags raised and people are going to start looking at this, then they released the aid. Okay, so we don't know actually what happened or what would have happened in the alternative universe. But the allegation is not even that Trump withheld aid in order to get something the allegation is that he was going to withhold aid until he got something and then was thwarted because he was so incompetent and, and it leaked out. So this is something where <laughs> Rush Limbaugh actually had a funny statement about all this stuff. Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase it the way he said it probably would be better. But Rush said something like, okay, so let me get this straight. All the stuff that Hillary Clinton did with her emails and whatever, that stuff clearly was breaking the law. What she actually did but she gets a pass because she didn't mean to. That was the official explanation. Whereas with Trump, he didn't actually do anything wrong, but he meant to. And so that's why we're going to impeach him. <laughs> that's kind of funny. All right. So what's going to be worse than trying to withhold military aid until some another government investigates a different U.S. official? Well, I've got some examples. Okay, let's, let's do it by president. So Barack Obama, I'll use my go-to example. On May 29th, 2012, the New York Times had an article, the headline of which was, Secret Kill List Proves the Test of Obama's Principles and Will. And the first couple paragraphs here. This was the enemy, served up in the latest chart from the intelligence agencies. 15 Qaeda suspects in Yemen with Western ties. The mugshots and brief biographies resembled a high school yearbook layout. Several were Americans. Two were teenagers, including a girl who looked even younger than her 17 years. President Obama, overseeing the regular Tuesday counterterrorism meeting of two dozen security officials in the White House Situation Room, took a moment to study the faces. It was January 19th, 2010. 
the end of a first year in office punctuated by terrorist plots and culminating in a brush with catastrophe over Detroit on Christmas Day, a reminder that a successful attack could derail his presidency. Yet he faced adversaries without uniforms, often indistinguishable from the civilians around them. How old are these people, he asked, according to two officials present. If they are starting to use children, he said of Al-Qaeda, we are moving into a whole different phase. It was not a theoretical question. Mr. Obama has placed himself at the helm of a top-secret nominations process to designate terrorists for kill or capture, of which the capture part has become largely theoretical. He had vowed to align the fight against Al-Qaeda with American values. The chart, introducing people whose deaths he might soon be asked to order, underscored just what a moral and legal conundrum this could be. Well, let me see. I'll read one more. Mr. Obama is the liberal law professor who campaigned against the Iraq war and torture and then insisted on approving every new name on an expanding kill list, pouring over terrorist suspects biographies on what one official calls the macabre baseball cards of an unconventional war. When a rare opportunity for a drone strike at a top terrorist arises, but his family is with him, it is the president who has reserved to himself the final moral calculation. All right. And so the story goes on to explain, you might say, well, what about, you know, due process and all that stuff and the fact that the White House internally reviews who's on the list and whether or not they're going to be killed and they have some procedures set in place, such as Obama saying, no, no, if, if, if the suspect, you know, the person on our kill list is like with his family before the drone strike goes and hits the guy and, you know, might kill some of his family, I have to approve that, right? Those sorts of procedures, that's, that's the due process. It's not like they're going to bring in a judge and say, by the way, we're going to go kill this guy. Is that cool? No, we don't need to do that. Okay, so that's the New York Times. This was a front page story uh, treatment. So this was out in the open. You know, this isn't some secret that nobody knew about. And nobody impeached him for doing that. To me, that sounds a lot worse than what Trump is accused of doing. But your mileage may vary. What about George W. Bush? This is a good one. We have a clip of Nancy Pelosi explaining why what, what they had on Bush actually wasn't an impeachable offense in her mind, right? So remember, she now is on board with impeaching Trump for what he did, namely asking another government to investigate Joe Biden, but she wasn't on board for, let, let's hear her describe what she knew George Bush had done. So this is what this is, is a clip from a CNN town hall that recently occurred it's, it's fascinating. This, this, it's a student who's asking the question and then listen to her answer. So, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, you resisted calls for the impeachment of President Bush in 2006 and President Trump following the Mueller report earlier this year. Uh, this time is different. Uh, why, did you impose, why did you oppose impeachment in the past? And what is your obligation to protect our democracy from the actions of our president now? Thank you. I thank you for bringing up the question about because when I became speaker the first time, there was overwhelming call for me to impeach President Bush on the strength of the war in Iraq, which I vehemently opposed. And again, I, again, I, I say again, I said, said it other places, I, I, that was my wheelhouse. I was intelligence. I was a ranking member on the intelligence committee uh, even before I became part of the leadership, a gang of four. So I knew there were no nuclear weapons in Iraq. It just wasn't there. They had to show us, they had to show the gang of four all the intelligence they had. The intelligence did not show that uh, that, that was the case. So I knew it was a, a misrepresentation to the public. But having said that, it was a, in my view, uh, not a grounds for impeachment. Uh, that was, they won the election, they made a representation. And to this day, people think, people think that, um, that it was the right thing to do. The people think that Iraq had something to do with 9-11. I mean, it's as appalling what they did. Uh, but I did, and I said, if somebody wants to make a case, you bring it forward. Uh, but I, I, they had impeached Bill Clinton for personal indiscretion and misrepresenting about it. Impeached him. Some of these same people are saying, oh, this doesn't rise to impeachment. Were the, right there impeaching Bill Clinton uh, for uh, for being stupid in terms of uh, uh, something like that. <laughs> I mean, I love him. I think he was a great president. But being stupid in terms of that and, and, and what would somebody do not to embarrass their family? But in any event, um, and that's so they did. Bill Clinton, 
Now they want me to do George. I just didn't want it to be a way of life in our country. There you go. Isn't that incredible? So, by the way, I didn't clip it short. I let it play out through the part where she says, well, because remember, Clinton had just been impeached over the Monica Lewinsky thing. And so I didn't want this just to be a thing that every time a new president comes in. All right. So that was the one argument that she said there that, you know, in fairness, I don't want to clip that out. That you could argue, okay, there she was trying to explain the context. But notice, she wasn't saying the Bush administration was incompetent and that they were misled on the intelligence. And, and wow, those people are just a bunch of buffoons over there. They bumbled us into a war. No, she's saying she had seen the actual intelligence. <laughs> it's like Brad Pitt from Burn, with, Burn After Read That. This is the raw intelligence war. She had seen the stuff, you know, the lower level stuff that the analysts had, not the high level summaries being given the policymakers. And she knew... I think it's a bit to say she knew Iraq didn't have stuff, right? Because you can't prove a negative. But she knew that the intelligence did not support how the administration was using it to sell the war to the public and to the rest of the world. And yet, she didn't think that was an impeachable offense. Why? Well, because they won an election, right? So here, I'm just going to explicitly acknowledge Dave Smith. When he walked through this thing, he was pointing out, okay, well, Trump won an election. And then Pelosi also said, oh, and... You know, there, there's people to this day that still think it was the right decision. Okay, so what if you polled Americans right now and said, should Trump have wanted the Ukrainian government to investigate Joe Biden? How many would have supported that? I think way more people now would support that than support the Iraq invasion, right? So, in any, like I said, the one thing she said that, you know, was not to me a self-evidently stupid point was that we had just come off of the Republicans impeaching Bill Clinton for the Monica Lewinsky stuff. And so now when Bush comes in, if the Democrats turn around and impeach him, that might just mean every time a president comes in, we impeach him. Which arguably is not a bad thing. But <laughs> kind of goes to my point that that's not, you know, it's like the cops say, what are we going to do? If I give this guy a ticket for driving over the speed limit, what are we going to do? Start enforcing the law on everybody? That'd be crazy. Okay. So there's that. Again, I, I would say that, that that's a very telling position where Nancy Pelosi is admitting, I knew George W. Bush and his subordinates lied the American people into a war on the basis, I mean, the, the, uh, an aggressive war, right? They were, we were saying it was in our self-defense when she knew it was not. So besides just the impeachment stuff, like why didn't she do more at the time? I mean, the, maybe she said this previously. I don't know. I'm not an expert on Nancy Pelosi's public utterances, but that's a pretty shocking admission on her part. I don't know if she said that before, but again, it doesn't just reflect poorly on George W. Bush. It reflects poorly on her. Okay, what about Bill Clinton? Okay, so now here, let me acknowledge the awkward fact that Bill Clinton was impeached, all right? So it's, it's hard, you know, I can't say, oh, Bill Clinton wasn't impeached and he did worse thing, but I guess my point is, look at what he was impeached for. So <laughs> to go and amend or add more detail to my... Uh, speeding analogy, that would be like if the same cops who were sometimes giving people tickets also saw those guys using their cars to run over children in the school zone. And whether they had the bumper stickers or not, that wasn't the issue. But, you know, they'd give them the speeding ticket later if they had the, the bumper sticker making fun of cops. But everybody was running over children and the cops didn't care about that. I mean, that's, I guess, the, <laughs> the best way to change that analogy to show just how insane this is and how somebody pointing out uh, I don't think this system by which we're trying to police uh, motorists is actually very effective. The whole thing seems kind of crazy to me. Yeah, same thing here, where, yes, Bill Clinton was impeached, but what he was impeached for also was ludicrous compared to the other stuff that Clinton did. All right, but let me just mention, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie Bill Clinton in with Hillary, okay? So the last, on his last day in office, one of the major controversial things that Bill Clinton did is he pardoned this guy, Mark Rich, right? Again, the last day that Bill Clinton was in office. So here, I'll just read from the Wikipedia entry on Mark Rich. So let's see, uh, this section's entitled U.S. Indictment and Pardon. In 1983, Rich, so again, this guy's name is Mark Rich, 
and partner Pincus Green were indicted on 65 criminal counts, including income tax evasion, wire fraud, racketeering, and trading with Iran during the oil embargo at a time when Iranian revolutionaries were still holding American citizens hostage. The charges would have led to a sentence of more than 300 years in prison had Rich been convicted on all counts. Now let me pull the Seinfeld as an aside here that the you know tax evasion and trading with Iran and stuff, not that there's anything wrong with that from a non-aggression principle standpoint, but he was charged with all these things which would have uh, made him spend 300 years in prison and had been convicted. The indictment was filed by then U.S. federal prosecutor Rudy Giuliani or Rudolph Giuliani. At the time, it was the biggest tax evasion case in U.S. history. Okay, so learning of the plans for the indictment, Rich fled to Switzerland and never returned to the U.S. Okay, so he had just been living abroad because he knew if he came back to the U.S., boom, he was going to get arrested and face all these enormous uh, charges. Let's see. Um, on January 20th, 2001, hours before leaving office, U.S. President Bill Clinton granted Rich a controversial presidential pardon. Several of Clinton's strongest supporters distanced themselves from the decision. Former President Jimmy Carter, a fellow Democrat, said, I don't think there's any doubt that some of the factors in his pardon were attributable to his large gifts. In my opinion, that was disgraceful. Clinton himself later expressed regret for issuing the pardon, saying that, quote, it wasn't worth the damage to my reputation. So what are, you, what are we talking about here? Why is Jimmy Carter so, uh, think it's so disgraceful? Continuing with the Wikipedia entry, Clinton's critics alleged that Rich's pardon had been bought as Denise Rich, I guess that's his wife, had given more than $1 million to Clinton's political party, the Democratic Party, including more than $100,000 to the Senate campaign of the president's wife, Hillary Rodham Clinton, and $450,000 to the Clinton Library Foundation during Clinton's time in office. Okay, so again, last day he's in office, Bill Clinton pardons Mark Rich, who had given you know $1.5 million or so to the Democratic Party and... Uh, the Clintons specifically. Okay, I'm, I'm lumping all those numbers together. Okay, so there's there's that. And by the way, too, I forgot to mention when I was reading that New York Times article on Obama's secret kill list, notice it said in there that part of the reason Obama, you know, was was really wanting to crack down on this is because if there was a terrorist attack, it could derail his presidency. All right, so I'm not saying Barack Obama, other things equal, would want there to be terrorist attacks. But again, just notice the natural use of that language in the New York Times piece, which clearly is not an anti-Obama rag, right? That it's totally, I mean, it, when you're a president, when you get to that level of political achievement in terms of winning elections and things to achieve such positions of power, the distinction between doing what's good for the country and what's good for your presidency or your administration, I mean, it's a distinction without a difference often, Okay, let's continue with this uh, issue of of Bill and Hillary Clinton and their possible trading of state uh, policy and their position as policymakers in exchange for things that are clearly for their personal benefit, right? So that's why I'm really focusing on that aspect because that was, again, the one thing where I could see, as the critic of the Contra Krugman episode brought up, that... Yeah, Bob, it, it's not that we're saying that what Trump did here is among the top 20 worst things U.S. presidents in history have ever done. It's that this isn't merely a horrible policy. This is clearly something where Trump is abusing his office for his own personal gain, whereas, you know, some of these other things, it's not so obvious, that distinction. All right, well, and, and so that's why I'm focusing here on Hillary Clinton and again, the point's not, what aboutism? I'm not saying, oh, what Trump did is fine because Hillary Clinton. I'm saying the Democratic Party, who are obviously the ones responsible for impeaching Trump because they say, oh, I can't believe he would do something so corrupt and self-serving. This is unconscionable. They're a bunch of liars. That's not why they're doing it. They don't care. What Trump did is peanuts compared to what these people do all the time. So that's my point in bringing this up. And so why is Hillary Clinton so important in this respect or such a good example because she was the one that they wanted to be president instead of Trump. So the fact that they can stomach what she did and still support her as the candidate proves Trump's actions aren't really that big a deal in their book. Okay. That's why I'm focusing on her. It's not just I'm randomly picking some Democrat. It's the Democrat that they wanted to win instead of Trump. All right. So for one thing, there is a whole book called Clinton Cash by 
Peter Schweitzer, I think I'm saying his name right, dedicated this, right? So the subtitle is The Untold Story of How and Why Foreign Governments and Businesses Helped Make Bill and Hillary Rich. All right. So you can go check that out if you want. But what I did, you know, so I skimmed some of this book in preparation for this episode. But then I thought, you know what? Let me go look at what the critics of the book are saying. And there's enough in here. I'll just read from an ABC News article that is talking about the book, but then, you know, says, oh, it's, it's, it doesn't really prove anything. All right. So the title, so this story from ABC News is April 23rd, 2015. The title is Bill Clinton cashed in when Hillary became secretary of state. So I'm not reading from the article. After his wife became secretary of state, former president Bill Clinton began to collect speaking fees that often doubled or tripled what he had been charging earlier in his post-White House years, bringing in millions of dollars from groups that included several with interest pending before the State Department, an ABC News review of financial disclosure records shows. Where he once had drawn $150,000 for a typical address in the years following his presidency, Bill Clinton saw a succession of staggering paydays for speeches in 2010 and 2011, including $500,000 paid by a Russian investment bank and $750,000 to address a telecom conference in China. Okay, so let me just make sure you understand what's going on. Bill Clinton, after he leaves office, right, there's the 2000 election, George W. Bush beats Gore in a controversial thing with hanging chads and whatever, and he's sworn in in 2001. So Bill Clinton's going around giving speeches as the former U.S. president at that time. And at that point, in the early 2000s, his typical speaking fee was $150,000. Pretty big number still, but okay, that's what he was charging. Then later, in 2010 and 2011, when Hillary Clinton becomes the Secretary of State under Barack Obama, now all of a sudden Bill Clinton's going around and instead of getting 150 grand for a typical speech, he's getting huge payouts. In one case, getting 500,000 by a Russian investment bank and 750,000 to address a telecom conference in China. Now, why would that be? <laughs> and here's this other guy. This is funny. It's unusual. So this is a quote in the article. It's unusual to see a former president's speaking fee go up over time, said Richard Painter, who served as chief ethics lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office under President George W. Bush. I must say I'm surprised that he raised his fees. There's no prohibition on his raising it, but it does create some appearance problems if he raises his fee after she becomes secretary of state. All right. So... You get the point here. People are concerned that, gee, it looks like Bill Clinton's going around and getting huge paydays, getting 500 grand, sometimes once even 750 grand to give a speech when his wife is the secretary of state and obviously has a lot of uh, power over deals or, or policy rulings that could affect these foreign clients. Okay. And more of what's going on here. And so that's what this whole book Clinton Cash is about. And in fact, the Clintons took in more than $100 million from the time Bill Clinton left office up until when the book came out and just speaking fees. So in terms of the pushback on this book, there was, I've, I've seen, you know, so if you go and, and talk about this and cite this as a, so people say, oh, this is a discredited conspiracy theory, right? That that's, what, that's how they'll dismiss it. And so I did check, and yeah, it does look like the guy did botch a couple of important facts. And the way he handled it, he was more like, well, the narrative still stands here, instead of just saying, yeah, I got that one wrong, and here's what happened. So, you know, I'm, I'm not holding this book up as, as gospel in terms of all the, the facts. But again, I'm looking at these websites or whatever that are pointing out that the book made some mistakes. And even though what they have to agree happened is pretty damning in and of itself. All right. So one of the things they found, in case you're curious, is on one of the, so the guy has like a chapter devoted to different topics or you know, one chapter per topic, different events or scenarios. And so one of them, he was saying that there was some Irish mogul who was trying to get the Clintons to play ball with him on something. And it was listing the fees that Bill Clinton got for speeches. And apparently some of those speeches actually he gave for free. Okay. So something like that, where, you know, just the basic fact apparently was wrong. And again, the author didn't, I didn't see him try to explain how he got it wrong. He just kind of said, okay, well, yeah, that might be wrong, but still the, the basic pattern remains. Okay. So here's, I'm, I'm so again, I'm reading from 
this ABC News article where their their main tack is just to say no one has been able to prove that Hillary Clinton actually made a ruling in her capacity as Secretary of State that changed because of what what occurred. I mean, so in other words, there's no quid pro quo here that can be demonstrated. The whole thing is just hilarious in light of what's going on with Trump. But in any event, uh, so this is reading from the ABC News uh, article. The former president collected large payments from companies with global interests, such as Canada's TD Bank, which had an interest in the Keystone Pipeline, a subject of intense lobbying in Washington. In just one week in March of 2011, Clinton collected $1.3 million giving speeches in Nigeria, Brazil, and Grand Cayman. Okay, so this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And by the way, this is not, this doesn't have to do with the, the Clinton Foundation. This is just Bill Clinton personally getting checks to give speeches. Okay, and so part of what is going on with the Clinton Foundation, which is, you know, their charitable organization that was set up to fight malaria and HIV AIDS and teach young girls how to use birth control and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're really such humanitarians, the Clintons. But that, that's a separate thing. And so when Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State in the Obama administration, one of the things they did is they told her, you, the, the Clinton Foundation can't accept donations from foreign governments because that's just way too much of, you know, whether you're actually doing it or not, just has the appearance of corruption, right? The foreign governments are giving big, writing big checks to your foundation while you're the secretary of state dealing with foreign governments. That's crazy. Can't do that. And so they agreed to it. And then it turned out that they didn't even follow that agreement. Okay, so that's one of the things that this guy uh, Schweitzer documents in his book. And like I said, I've gone through looking even the critics of the book and they admit that that's true. That even though Hillary Clinton agreed, you know, when Obama said, you can be my secretary of state, I'm just repeating myself to make sure you caught it. But the Clinton Foundation cannot accept contributions from foreign governments if you're going to do that because that just looks too shady. And she said, okay, sure. And then they didn't actually follow through on that. They were accepting contributions from foreign governments, even as she was secretary of state, even though she said she wouldn't. Another issue too is, and I'll link this in the show notes. So by the way, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 90. I'm reading from an article at opensecrets.org. The title is Clinton Foundation's Revenue Hit 15-Year Low After 2016 Presidential Election. So the deal here is if you think the Clinton Foundation is just this noble enterprise to help the disadvantaged around the world. It's kind of weird that when Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 presidential race to Trump, that all of a sudden the donations to this charitable foundation dried up. All right. And they dropped to a, what did I say? A 15 year low. That's interesting that I guess people, well, it makes sense. People become hard hearted and they vote for Trump and they stop donating to fight malaria. So obviously the insinuation here or the suspicion is that foreign entities giving money to the Clinton Foundation is a way of indirectly bribing Hillary Clinton to, to do things in their favor or on their behalf. There was no point in doing that anymore once she wasn't going to be president. Let me just mention, by the way, that, that you might want to look, if you're going to use this statistic in your argument to try to show that the Clintons were necessarily corrupt, you should probably look at a chart of it. And so again, I'll have the link at bobmurphyshow.com slash 90 to see. So, you know, that, that statement is correct, but th there was a cycle in the donation to the Clinton Foundation, okay, that in 2004, it looks like they had a donations of 60 million. By 2006, it had risen to, a, risen to 140 million. And then it really zoomed up in 2009, presumably when she was was going to come in as, as secretary of state under Obama when, you know, when that people could see that was going to happen. And there it was over 240 million, but then by 2011, it had dropped down to 60 million. All right. And then it, it was the, there, I'm just looking at this chart here. It dropped a little bit more 2012 and then it started zooming up again. And by 2014, it had risen to 180 million. Okay, and then, then it's got a steady decline. And by 2017, 
you know, the year after she loses to Trump, it was down to 38 million. Okay. So the basic story is still there, but it's not, it, it would have been more of a smoking gun if it had just zoomed up, you know, when she was in office as secretary of state and stayed at the same level and then just fell off a cliff right when she lost to Trump. That would, that would be more of a smoking gun. Whereas this, it does look like it's in cycles and, you know, just the fact it's not going to go back up after she doesn't become president. All right. So there you have it. So with all this stuff, just taking a step back here, what's my point? My point is Trump is no doubt a shady character, done a lot of corrupt stuff, both in business. And then once he becomes president, have no doubt about that. But the fact that he was impeached, it's not because he did something that was so singularly reprehensible. That's just beyond the pale. It's not the worst thing that Trump has done in office, let alone, you know, one of the top three worst things that have ever been done. And it's not, even close to being the most self-serving act of corruption of somebody in office. What the Clintons have been doing is way worse in terms of just the magnitude and scope of it. Now, the difference is the Clintons are smoother about it, whereas Trump, I mean, this is why the people who love the state hate Trump's guts, or one of the reasons, is because he's so crass and he's so blunt that he's ruining the mystique of the presidency. He's debasing the office, right? He doesn't say something in flowery language. So what he's doing is no different from what the others have done. It's just he didn't have the decency to do it on his secret email server out of the prying eyes of other people. He had the audacity to just frankly ask the guy point blank, hey, can you do me a favor? And then he even releases the transcript because he didn't think he did anything wrong. Okay, so that, that's, that's what Trump's problem is here, among other things, is that he was just so naked about it. But the fact of what he, what he did compared to these other people is nothing. Okay, so I'm not saying he should therefore get a pass, but what I am saying is this impeachment process, don't kid yourself that, oh, yeah, the people in Congress every once in a while develop a conscience and a, a respect for the rule of law. That's not what's happening here. That's not why he got impeached. And, you know, I just, it, it amazes me that even people who are pretty cynical about the political sphere think that, oh yeah, Trump finally got, we got coming because he's so corrupt. That's, no, that's not what's going on here. And last thing I'll say, don't kid yourself that the lesson future presidents are going to take from this is, wow, I better really be above board. Otherwise I might get impeached. No, the lesson is going to be be more discreet about it, number one, but also don't pick a fight with the CIA and other members or organizations in the intelligence community because, as Schumer said, they have six ways to Sunday to get back at you. That's what the lesson here is going to be. Well, that's all the time we got for today. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.